therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. should have and very often you'll find a zipper hidden in the uh, arm in that good afternoon ladies and gentlemen you'll excuse the fact that i'm out of breath but about 10 or 15 minutes ago a tragic thing from all indications at this point has happened in the city of dallas this is Walter Brown, guide in our newsroom. here's a uh, piece of copy that was rushed uh, to me and was torn off from the united press President Kennedy has been shot in Dallas. Along with Governor Connolly of Texas, they've been taken to Parkland Hospital there, where their condition is as yet unknown. And just now, we've received reports here at Parkland that Governor Connolly was shot in the upper left chest. And the first unconfirmed report say the president was hit in the head. That's an unconfirmed report that the president was hit in the head. Police began chasing an unknown gunman across a railroad track. Would you see if they need some coffee or something? These people are awfully shaken up. They were in the line of fire. The president's car was some 50 feet, and we heard the first shot. And then as the car got directly in front of us, well, a gun shot from the top of the hill to hit the president in the side, side of the temple. You know, where did the shots come from? The shot came from the hill. From the hill? Yes. Excuse me just a moment, John. Uh, this is just word from the hospital that they have dispatched a call for a neurosurgeon. All we can do now is pray for him, and it's about all we can do. President's wife, Jackie Kennedy, was not hurt. She walked into the hospital. A priest has been ordered. Emergency supplies of blood also being rushed to the hospital. Just a moment. Just a moment. We have a bulletin coming in. We now switch you directly to Parkland Hospital and KBOX News Director Bill Hampton. Two priests who were with President Kennedy say he is dead. Just two priests announced it? Yes. But it's not the truth, is it? Flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Well, I just can't see why anybody would want to uh, shoot Mr. Kennedy for all the things he's done for us and try to keep us from getting into war and everything. It's a simple matter, Tom, of, of a bullet right through the head. We have repeat 
search of the building. They found no weapon. We just got the word Lyndon B. Johnson has been sworn in as the President of the United States just prior to a takeoff to return to Washington. Behind the casket is Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy. They are helping her down. Now, new President Lyndon Baines Johnson. We have suffered a loss that cannot be weighed. At Bethesda Naval Hospital, the autopsy team has completed work. Now, the body of the slain president and his widow are at last brought home to the White House. Who do you think will do something like this? A group of communists, I think. Probably some segregationist crackpot or something. Just They had it all planned out, and I, I really believe that his blood will be on their hands. Well, I know whoever catches them, they deserve the worst. Here's the suspect. Can we roll it, please? He won't have given me a hearing without legal representation or anything. You shoot the president? I didn't shoot anybody. I emphatically deny these charges. This is 24-year-old Lee H. Oswald. He answers the description of a young man cited at the book depository building. Police chased Oswald into a movie theater. Police said he fired at them, killing patrolman J.D. Tippett. A rifle was found in a building where he worked. Police refused to say whether they have any fingerprints from that weapon as yet. The man obviously was an excellent shot or very lucky in that witnesses said three shots were fired. At least two of them found their marks. Now at the Capitol Rotunda, there will be three short speeches before the public is allowed to start viewing the body. Chief, do you have any concern for the safety of your prisoner? No, but because necessary, precautions will be taken, of course. Is there any doubt in your mind, Chief, that Oswald is the man who killed the president? This is the man who killed the president. I'm just a president. So great is the crush outside the Capitol that people who have not been in line can't possibly. We are now switching to Dallas, where they are about to move Lee Oswald and where there's a scuffle. Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who Dallas police say killed President Kennedy, himself is dead. The man Dallas police sees at the scene and are holding has been identified as Jack Ruby. He is being held by the Dallas police, now back to Washington. Fifty-three countries are represented in all today. There are a dozen members of ruling royal families, 30 foreign ministers. They should be all right in the few months ahead. I'm sure the uh, entire citizenry, the nation, will stand faithfully behind the government. This bizarre sequence of double killings raised great questions. Who actually fired the shots that killed Kennedy? Was there a conspiracy? The first wound described was a wound in the back of the head and which seemed to indicate a shot from behind. But the doctors also said there was a wound in the throat at the front, which seemed to indicate a shot from the other direction. The new president, Lyndon Johnson, appointed a commission of seven prominent Americans to investigate the whole affair. Earl Warren, Chief Justice of the United States, Richard B. Russell, Senator from Georgia, John Sherman Cooper, Senator from Kentucky, Hale Boggs, Representative from Louisiana, Gerald R. Ford, Representative from Michigan, John J. McCloy, Presidential Advisor, Alan W. Dulles, ex-head of the CIA, 
Are you convinced that he was shot from the school book repository? Well, I think we better leave all that, you know. Uh, I, not, the, uh, the evidence report will cover all, all of that. The Warren Commission uh, had at its disposal the complete resources of the FBI, the Secret Service, the CIA. The only direction to the commission was to find the truth. And I, my, my own conviction is that we found it. The Warren Commission makes these major findings. Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated President Kennedy. He did it alone. He was not a part of any conspiracy, either domestic or foreign. Some other details will be of interest mainly to historians and others having some special interest. But there is one further piece of evidence that the public cannot see. Abraham Zabruder's film of the actual assassination. This murder now is the most thoroughly documented crime in American history. And for those who care to pursue it down to the last detail, it's all there. This is Dealey Plaza. To this day remains a crime scene. In the years since the Warren report, many significant reinvestigations were made into the murder of President Kennedy. Each one revealed new facts and evidence that shed more light on what really happened here that day. Starting in 1975, after the Watergate scandal, Senator Frank Church conducted an investigation into the abuses and crimes of the FBI and CIA. During that time, the public learned of the CIA plots to assassinate foreign leaders, like Patrice Lumumba of the Republic of Congo and Fidel Castro of Cuba. Plots orchestrated under director Alan Dulles. But the Church Committee didn't stop there. Senators Richard Schweiker and Gary Hart were tasked to re-examine the roles of the CIA and FBI as the chief investigators for the Warren Commission and look for signs of conflicts or cover-ups. J. Edgar Hoover writes, yes, we did have relationship with Mr. Ruby and he acted as our foreman. Now, who said that at the time of the Warren Commission report? Did anybody ever imply that, that Jack Ruby uh, was a confidential informer for the FBI? Nobody breathed that. That was classified. Faith in what the American public was told by the Warren Commission was starting to unravel. The intelligence agencies did all the wrong things if they really were looking for conspiracy or to find out who killed John Kennedy. The search for real answers gained momentum. Then, 12 years after the assassination, the most iconic piece of evidence was leaked and finally shown to the public. It's the film shot by the Dallas dress manufacturer, Abraham uh, Zapruder, uh, and it's the execution of President Kennedy. And uh, Bob and Dick, would you please narrate what we're seeing as we show this film? Now, before he goes behind the sign, the president is waving to the crowd. When he comes out from behind the sign, he is shot, and then Governor Connolly is shot. He's already been hit. He's already been hit. And now? At the bottom of the screen, the head shot. That's the shot that blew up his head. That's the most upsetting thing I've ever seen. We'll talk about it in a minute. Seeing the shock and brutality of the actual assassination caused a public outcry. The government formed the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the HSCA. The committee will come to order. The HSCA re-interviewed witnesses and took new testimonies that exposed massive inconsistencies with the original Warren report. 
Does any other scientist to date uh, link the uh, so-called pristine bullet to the injuries? Not that I'm aware of, no. The Pentagon has destroyed its Kennedy assassination file. And we don't know why that was done. But at the end of that investigation, what the HSCA learned was considered too damaging to be made public and close to a half million records were to remain sealed until 2029. A fact that we made clear at the conclusion to our 1991 film, JFK. The media controversy that accompanied the film forced Congress to do something about the secrecy that still surrounded these classified files. Hearings were held on Capitol Hill. Most Americans did not believe or support the verdict of the Warren Commission initially, and now, more than three in four, according to all recent samplings of public opinion, think some conspiracy was involved. And in 1992, the John F. Kennedy Records Collection Act was passed. Clerk will report the title. Senate 3006, an act to provide for the expeditious disclosure of records relevant to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. This act provided funding and formed the Assassination Records Review Board, the ARRB. The public wasn't going to have to wait until 2029. Declassification was to begin now. The board was given a budget and timeline of four years to declassify and make public as many documents and records as possible. They managed to collect over two million pages of declassified records and artifacts. They are all housed at the National Archives in Maryland. And since then, the public has been free to view, study, and investigate. There is now so much more that we know. And with those facts in hand, we will go back and piece together what really happened that day and discover the reasons why. Let's begin. Something has happened in the motorcade. Stand by, please. The JFK case was such a mass of confusion. For example, the Warren Commission was limited to only three shots because three shells were found on the sixth floor of the school book depository. On that floor, we found the three empty shells that had been fired, uh, but they had characteristics on them so that our ballistic expert was able to prove that they were fired by this gun. Can you have fired at me? I know there was no there. All three at the present. All three at the present, and we have them. The FBI concluded that all three bullets struck inside the car. He was hit by the first and the third. The second shot hit the governor. The third shot I tore a large part of the president's head off. The Warren Commission put itself in a straitjacket. They could not possibly allow more than three shots because four shots or more would have clearly indicated conspiracy, and they were not going there. Now, standing down under the underpass, on the curb, there was very invisible mark where a bullet had struck. Either a fragment of the bullet scratched my face. Records show the first shot had missed its target completely, and the final shot hit Kennedy in the head. So how does one account for one bullet hitting two victims and doing all this damage? Our inspector was a Yale Law School graduate working in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office when he was asked to serve on the Warren Commission. Aha! Uh -huh. What if one bullet made all seven wounds? Our inspector, he is the one that gave birth to the single bullet theory. What if one bullet went into Kennedy's back and came out his neck? 
and then went into Connolly's back, uh, piercing the lung, destroying four inches of the right fifth rib, exiting from the front of his chest, going into the back of the wrist, shattering the distal end of the radius. And a six foot four guy like Connolly, that's a big heavy bone, comminuted fracture, exits from the front of the wrist, goes into his left thigh. Whatever you want, whatever you need, this bullet happily and readily obliges you. It is indeed a magic bullet. CE-399 was the magic bullet, and all government investigations so far have treated that bullet as absolutely foundational to this case. How important is chain of custody in a legal proceeding? Chain of custody basically refers to the integrity of evidence. If I uh, pick up a piece of evidence and I transfer it to somebody else for holding or processing, my name is the first name on this list. The second person who touches this and takes possession of it is next. And if you don't do that, there's no way to prove that the evidence you collected on day one is the same one you get on day 25 when you go to court. Can you walk us through the magic bullets chain of custody from the Parkland employees to the Secret Service to the FBI? Well, the magic bullet was supposedly found on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital and went through several hands. Uh, before it got to the Secret Service. Richard Johnson was the first Secret Service agent to handle it, and he carried it back to Washington, D.C. When he got back to Washington, D.C., he gave it to the chief of the Secret Service, who was James Rowley. And at the White House, uh, James Rowley uh, gave it to Elmer Lee Todd, and Todd then took it to the FBI lab and gave it to Robert Frazier. We have interesting information produced by John Hunt, a private citizen who went to the archives on four or five occasions to track down the story about the magic bullet. And what he found was truly astounding. He practically moved into the National Archives in Washington, D.C. They allowed him to set up a desk with a computer and his own scanner. And he also uh, did something different. He didn't interview policemen and, and FBI people, and he wasn't swayed by their excuses. He went straight to, this is what you told, and you signed your name. Working with the FBI and Warren Commission documents, John Hunt asked the most basic question. Was CE-399 in evidence the same bullet that was found on the stretcher? At 7.30 at night, this is the day of the assassination, November 22nd, 1963, a bullet appears in the record, and it's signed for by Robert Fraser, who is the main investigator at the FBI lab. And it's not just one document. There are multiple documents that indicate that Fraser signed for a bullet at 7.30 that night. Now, here's where things get interesting. Elmer Lee Todd received the bullet at the White House from Chief of the Secret Service, James Rowley. And Todd documents very clearly in writing that he got this bullet at 8.50 p.m. How is that possible? How can Robert Fraser receive the bullet in the lab at 7.30 from Elmer Lee Todd when Todd didn't get the bullet until 8.50. You would think that they would have handled it, uh, you know, like it would have been gold going to the bank. There it is in the record. Someone is lying about when they got the bullet. It gets worse, though.
Todd initialed that bullet, the one that he got at uh, 8.50. And everyone else who touched the bullet after that initialed it too, including Robert Fraser. I went to the archives to look at this bullet. And specifically, what we want to know is, do we see Todd's initials on this bullet? He said he, he initialed the bullet. It is not there. Todd's initials are not on the magic bullet. I was very interested in finding out what the review board would show us about this. So we began scouring their evidence and we found out something very interesting. We found out that the Warren report had from an FBI a report saying that the guys that found the bullet later identified that as the bullet they'd seen. The internal record didn't show that at all. The internal record said this bullet didn't look like that bullet at all. But the FBI had reported the Warren Commission that it did. It lied. We then talked to the FBI agent that was supposed to have carried that bullet around. His name was Bardwell Odom. I got Bardwell Odom on the phone. I sent him the documents that said that he had done this. He said, I never had that bullet. I never showed any bullet to anyone. If I'd had the bullet, there'd be a 302. I would have filed a report, particularly in that era. Everybody was very uptight about getting everything right. So we scoured for 302 reports. His name appears nowhere in the record. This is just something that the FBI invented. It's conceivable that some mysterious bullet showed up from who knows where. Todd did not initial it, and it ended up in the FBI lab as the magic bullet. One can only surmise that somewhere in the FBI, they realized they had to close the loop on Oswald's guilt, and so they just switched it out. Because none of the four people, either the guys at Parkland or the two Secret Service agents, could identify the bullet. The guy who was supposed to have gotten confirmation that they did identify the bullet said he never did it, and the record supports that. So there's, there's good reason to be very suspicious about the magic bullet. The chain of custody doesn't star friend the laboratory and star friend the crime scene. Each piece of evidence should be photographed, documented, and uh, preserved properly. Friend the scene, evidence collected, sent to the laboratory. We have to keep the champ custody when they enter the lab. Who examined, who did the further analysis, and uh, each step have to maintain and tear submit to the court. If this chain broke, then my evidence become inadmissible. The other problem is the lack of damage to the bullet after going through two men, smashing two bones and making seven wounds. Dr. Joseph Dolce was the much honored battlefield surgeon during World War II. He worked for the Warren Commission. And so they gave us the original rifle, the Mandelker Carcano, plus 100 bullets, 6.5 millimeters. And we went and we shot the cadaver wrist. And in every instance, the front or the tip of the bullet was smashed. Under no circumstances do I feel that this bullet could hit the wrist and still not be deformed. Dolce came to believe that two bullets had struck Conley. Since our inspector pre-screened the medical witnesses for the commission, Dolce's name is not in the Warren report and his testimony is not in the volumes. And even Conley refused to accept the single bullet theory. Former Senator John Sherman Cooper is the first member of the Warren Commission to agree to talk on television about what went on inside the deliberations. 
Yes, there were disagreements. I think the most uh, serious one of the ones that comes to me most vividly, of course, was the question of whether or not Bershaw went through President Kennedy and then through Governor Connolly. Although it never specified the order of the shots, the Warren report had one bullet going through Kennedy and Governor Connolly. Another missing the car, hitting a bystander on Commerce Street, James Tay. And the final shot hitting Kennedy in the head. I could not convince myself that the same bullet uh, was on my You mean that you yourself didn't, weren't convinced about the single bullet theory? Which... No, I wasn't convinced. Neither was Senator Russell. Senator Richard Russell of Georgia did not want to serve on the commission. After he attended the first meeting, he quickly became disenchanted with the proceedings, particularly the roles of J. Edgar Hoover and acting attorney general Nicholas Katzenbach. His personal papers at the University of Georgia Library contain a memo written after the initial December 5th, 1963 executive session. Something strange is happening. Warren and Katzenbach know all about the FBI and are apparently planning to show Oswald as the only one considered. This, to me, is an untenable position. His papers revealed that he wrote a dissenting opinion for the presentation at the final commission meeting of September 18th. On that day, he shared his concerns with President Johnson. Well, what, what difference did it make? Which bullet got Conway? Well, it don't make much difference, but they said that, that the committee, be the commission believed that the same bullet that hit Kennedy hit Conway. Well, I don't believe it. I don't either. And, uh, of course, if a fellow was accurate enough to hit Kennedy right in the neck on one shot, knock his head off next one, when he was going to that theory, he not only missed the whole automobile, but he missed the street. Well, a man's good enough shot to put two bullets right in the candy. He didn't miss that old automobile. And so I couldn't sign it. And I, I said that Governor Connolly testified directly to the contrary. And I'm not going to approve of that. He also thought that Oswald did not act alone. Russell was strongly influenced by the Zabruder film and by the testimony of Governor Connolly. I understand there's some, uh, some question in the minds of the experts about... Uh, whether or not we could both have been hit with the same bullet, and that was the first bullet. Uh, I just don't happen to believe that. I don't believe it, and I will believe it. This forced the other commissioners to include Connolly's dissent in the report, and as a result, they could not absolutely deny the possibility of a conspiracy. Russell became the first commissioner to criticize the Warren report in public. He was followed by commission members John Sherman Cooper and Hale Boggs. But then Walter Cronkite interviewed John McCloy during a four-night special co-hosted by Dan Rather. Are you satisfied that as much effort was put into challenging that case as into establishing it? I'll answer that in just a moment. If I may just say one thing, I, I, which I'd like to say. In the first place, I had some questions to the propriety of my appearing here as a former member of the commission to comment on the evidence of the commission. McCloy never answered Cronkite's questions. But even worse, CBS employee Roger Feynman later discovered internal documents showing McCoy consulted extensively on the series through his daughter Ellen, an administrative assistant to CBS president Richard Solant. 
1992, reporter Jerry Polkoff confronted Salant and Ellen McCoy with the documents revealing John McCloy's instructions for the content of the show. Only then did Salant admit to their concealment. CBS, NBC, and the New York Times continued to support the commission's finding and never publicly reviewed the 26 volumes of supplemental evidence. Mr. Dulles, let me put some of the criticisms to you. Some of the papers and some of the documents that are in the archives are, are there but are withheld from public view by the FBI, the CIA, an organization with which you have some experience. Is there anything in those which uh, years from now when they may be released will upset apple carts? Oh, no, I don't think so. No, I think everything that really is, is vital insofar as forming a judgment as to what really happened uh, has been made available. The Warren Commission was aware of something else that was wrong with their evidence. All kinds of ballistic tests show that the bullets, in fact, came from that rifle. That was his rifle. You took a picture of him with it. His no, palm prints no, and fingerprints no, are all over the no. school book depository. You have been misinformed. The ballistic test did not prove anything at all. This is a weapon that was used. A rather well-worn military rifle. We know that Oswald had possession of that rifle because we have him photographed with it and we have his wife saying that it was, quote, faithful rifle of Lee Oswald. Is the rifle in evidence today the same rifle the commission said Oswald ordered through the mail? The rifle that Lee Oswald uh, allegedly ordered under an alias of Alex Heidel was obtained through Klein's Sporting Goods Store in Chicago. It was a mail order. Got it out of American Rifleman magazine. Uh, he wrote on the coupon he wanted a 36-inch model, Mannlicher Carcano, 6.5 millimeter, for $19.95. Robert Frazier was one of the examiners. He was a firearms expert for the FBI, and he testified that he did measure it, and the measurement was 40.2 inches in length from barrel to stock. There's a 4.2-inch difference in the one he ordered versus what they found in the book depository. Kleins may have indeed delivered a different Manlicher Carcano model to Oswald, but there are other anomalies to this story. The model that Oswald ordered showed these strap attachment points on the bottom of the barrel and stock. In the photograph is Lieutenant Carl Day with the Dallas Police Department bringing a rifle out of the book depository. One of the straps at the back of the gun is on the left side of the stock embedded in the stock. That's clearly not the rifle that was ordered or at least appears in the client's sporting goods store. The straps shown in the so-called backyard photos are on the bottom and not on the side of the stock. Marina Oswald took backyard photographs of Lee Oswald holding a rifle and a pistol on his hip. Um, and in that first photograph that she took three of, Commission Exhibit 133A, and 133B show a ring on the ring finger of the right hand. 133C, the ring appears on the left hand. In fact, the Dallas police showed Lee Oswald one of the pictures while he was still in custody. He said, that's my face, but I don't remember ever having that picture taken of me. But after all these questions are asked, the underlying mystery remains. Why would anyone use a rifle in an assassination knowing there was a paper trail that would lead right back to them?
Was there a palm print found on the rifle? The foremost fingerprint expert the FBI had, uh, Sebastian Latona, uh, took that rifle and attempted to lift prints off of the rifle, the stock and or the barrel. Uh, he testified to the Warren Commission that he found no usable prints anywhere on that rifle, on the metal or the stock. But yet, Lieutenant Day in Dallas, before the rifle went to Washington, said he found a partial palm print on the trigger guard on the left side and a partial print underneath the stock on the barrel. But Sebastian Latona said there was no evidence of a lift that even been attempted. No partials at all? Nothing that he could use in court. There has to be eight points of identification. He found nothing that would match that. Hey, Edgar Hoover on 2192. Yes, I, I've seen the uh, reports on this investigation. This man, Oswald, he had fired three shots. He then threw the gun aside and uh, he apparently uh, had come down uh, the five flights of steps, uh, stairway from the fifth floor. Now walking you, you can prove that. Oh yes, oh yes, we can prove that. Did anybody hear anybody say it? Most of the employees were down on the lower floor, but uh, he was stopped at the second floor by a police officer and some uh, worker, some manager in the building, told the police officer, "Well, he's all right. He works for you. He needn't hold him." So they let him go. That's how he got out. The time that I heard those shots, ran into that building and made it up to the second floor, it was approximately a minute and a half to two minutes. In possibly less than two minutes, investigators came to the school book building with stopwatches and critical eyes. Not only police and government agents traced that route, Chief Justice Warren and some other commission members did it for themselves was interested in finding a specific witness to the assassination, which was Victoria Adams. She worked on the fourth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, and she knew Oswald. I went to the National Archives searching for her original testimony. I was told that the tape containing her testimony was missing, and later I learned that that tape had been destroyed by the Warren Commission. And so I finally ended up finding her and getting her side of the story. Vicki Adams was 22 at the time of the assassination, and she testified that immediately after the assassination, she ran down the back stairs to get outside to see what was going on. If that were true, she would have seen Oswald on the back stairs. But she testified that she saw and heard no one she had realized that something was wrong because no one was believing her. So she asked David Bellin, who was questioning her, interview Sandra Stiles, a co-worker who went down the stairs with me. This became a rather serious problem for the Warren Commission because discrediting one woman was easy to do, but discrediting a cooperating witness, that may have been a little bit tougher. So. Mellon said, we don't need Sanders South, we have you. We've had Mr. Bellin here with us too, one of our counsel who's been here several times. Been... He knows this city now, and very few people do. <laughs> According to Vicki's original FBI testimony, she left the window on the fourth floor within 15 to 30 seconds of the assassination. The Warren Commission elevated that time to one minute. She said she arrived on the first floor within 60 seconds 
of the assassination, the Warren Commission elevated that time to several minutes. So what the Warren Commission did was successfully deceive the public into thinking that Vicky was just another confused witness. Case closed. Reenactments prove, the report says, that Oswald did have time, just enough time, to fire the shots, secret the rifle, and get down to the second floor cafeteria. But in 1999, I found a document in the National Archives that had been suppressed for 35 years. It was a letter written by Assistant U.S. Attorney Martha Jo Stroud. It was a transmittal letter forwarding Vicky's signed testimony to J. Lee Rankin, the head honcho of the Warren Commission's investigation at that point. In the last paragraph of that letter, almost as an afterthought, we're introduced to a woman by the name of Dorothy Garner. Garner was Vicky's immediate supervisor who had stood at the window with Vicky. The letter quotes Garner as saying that she saw Vicky go down the stairs before she saw Officer Baker and Roy truly come up. When I found and interviewed Dorothy Garner, she confirmed everything. She said that she had been at the window with Vicky, that Vicky had left the window immediately, that she actually followed Vicky outside the office and to a point where she could see her going down the stairs. And during that whole time, she never saw Oswald. So the Stroud letter became a very dangerous document for the Warren Commission. Without the review board's declassification process, we would never have learned of the corroborating testimony of three witnesses that provide powerful evidence that Oswald was not on the sixth floor at the time of the shooting. Legally speaking, the autopsy should have been done in Dallas, and there was a forensic pathologist, Earl Rose. He was there to assume jurisdiction and to do the autopsy. He was pushed up against the wall and threatened, hands on guns, a lot of expletives and so on. He followed them out the driveway, and they took the body illegally out of Dallas in violation of the laws in the state of Texas. After Air Force One left Dallas for Washington, two of the key doctors who had tried to save Kennedy's life at Parkland Hospital held a press conference. They were Dr. Malcolm Perry and Dr. Kemp Clark. So what were the two major points of evidence revealed by Kemp Clark and Malcolm Perry at the press conference? Dr. Perry performed the tracheotomy to help Kennedy breathe. And at a press conference, right after the failed resuscitation efforts in Dallas, he was asked, he said, well, where was the bullet? And he said, the bullet looked like it was coming at him. He had an entrance wound in the throat. Kemp Clark was the head of neurosurgery at Parkland. He said that the president had a gaping wound in the occipital parietal area. That's, you know, the right rear of the head. And so the description he gave of that was entirely consistent with an exit wound. We have a transcript today of what they said at the press conference. So it's White House transcript 1327C. That's a very important historical document because the Secret Service confiscated the videotapes from the local TV stations. There is, however, a surviving clip of Dr. Perry recorded not long after the press conference. 
arriving at the emergency room, uh, Dr. Carrigley placed the tube in the president's trachea to assist his breathing. But there was a neck wound anteriorly and a large wound in his head in the right posterior area. But Clark and Perry both revealed that day would indicate an assassin from the front. An assistant White House press secretary Malcolm Kildoff's statement seems to support this conclusion. It's a, it's a, a simple matter, Tom, of, uh, of a bullet right through the head. The day after the shooting, Dr. Perry was seen by nurse Audrey Bell, who had been with him in the operating room. Saturday morning when I got over there, Dr. Perry came up to the office. I said, you look awful. Did you get any sleep last night? He said, uh, well, not too much between the calls from Bethesda that came in during the night. I said, what about? He said, oh, uh, whether that was an entrance wound or an exit wound in the throat, he said they would want me to change my mind. In his Warren Commission testimony, he basically retracted what he had said, and they forced him to back down and intimidated him on the witness stand. It was really quite embarrassing for me as a physician to see how someone else who was telling the truth was basically forced to recant his own opinion. Did it occur to you at the time, or did you think, was this an entry wound or was this an exit wound? Actually, I didn't really give it much thought and uh, realized that Perhaps it would have been better had I have done so. But I actually applied my energies, and those of us there all did, to the problem at hand. And I didn't really concern myself too much with how it happened or why. In 1975, uh, Dr. Shires hired me on the faculty at the University of Washington uh, in the cardiac surgery division. So I got to know Malcolm uh, when I joined the faculty. We developed a professional relationship, and we would operate together on complex cases. And I was particularly interested in uh, Dr. Perry's position with the JFK assassination because he did the tracheotomy on him after he was shot. The problem is that Malcolm categorically refused to ever discuss the assassination. Uh, and he wouldn't answer my questions about that neck wound. And then one night, after we had operated together for many hours on a complex case, we were sitting in the surgeon's lounge alone drinking coffee, and I once again asked him about that neck wound. And this time, he said, it was an entrance wound, unquestionably an entrance wound. One of the the main reason Dr. Perry's changed his testimony and publicly agreed it was an exit wound is a Secret Service agent uh, put the pressure on him, and that person was Elmer Moore. In 1970, Elmer Moore was the head of the Secret Service office in Seattle, and a graduate student named Jim Gockenauer became friends with him, and he admitted to Gockenauer that he regretted putting pressure on Dr. Perry. So I asked him directly, I said, Mr. Moore, did you pressure Dr. Perry? He stopped for a minute. He says, well, I was ordered to do that. He expanded on it, and he said that uh, Inspector Kelly had ordered him to talk with Perry and uh, convince him that it could be either an exit or an entry wound, not an entry wound. And I thought it was pretty interesting that he would admit to something that's pretty close to a felony. 
Elmer Moore was also in charge of getting the doctors at Parkland to change their testimony and agree that there was no big hole in the back of Kennedy's head. Charles Crenshaw, a third-year resident, was in the emergency room at Parkland that day. He later said in public that he felt the wounds in Kennedy originated from the front. From here through. Charles Crenshaw wrote a book, Conspiracy of Silence, uh, in the wake of the film JFK, saying, look, I was at Parkland Hospital, I uh, saw Kennedy, was involved in the treatment, and Kennedy's wounds were not consistent with a shot from above and behind because he had a defect involving the right rear of his head. Using the most precise medical terminology that you can use. Okay, let's see, it was on the right rear, and he shifted the head a little bit to the left, lifted up the, uh, well, kind of the matted area, the flap, and you could see the uh, hole, and uh, there was uh, brain and uh, spinal fluid dripping down out of it, and then I noticed it was dripping, you know, down into a bucket. As early as 1981, copies of the autopsy photos were leaked and distributed among JFK researchers. The image of Kennedy's head wound contradicted what was witnessed by the Parkland doctors. I recall the injury being right along in this area. It's as if the autopsy materials were designed to hide what was really happening as opposed to what they should usually do. They're supposed to reveal the full extent of things. The evening of the assassination, the body of President Kennedy was returned to Washington. The autopsy was performed at Bethesda Medical Center, a naval institution. All of the top forensic pathologists in the United States were within one hour drive or flying time from DC. Not one of them was called upon. There were two Navy pathologists, Commander James Humes and his associate J. Thornton Boswell. These two military pathologists who had never done a single gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. And this is something that really has to be emphasized to every American. I don't care, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. This is your president. And you've got multiple gunshot wounds to determine angles, trajectory, range, sequence. And then you got to correlate with the multiple gunshot wounds in Conley. This is a formidable task that would have required two or three major forensic pathologists to, to undertake. So they called Humes and Boswell. They realized they were over their head. They called in an expert from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, a guy named Pierre Fink. Dr. Humes and Boswell started the autopsy before their forensics consultant even got there, but they realized they were in over their head, so they asked to have a medical examiner because Dr. Fink, who was a forensic pathologist, wasn't doing autopsy. He hadn't done one in more than two years. So they asked for permission to bring in somebody who knew what they were doing. Permission was denied. There were a lot of people at the Bethesda morgue. The latest count by all the researchers that I know of is about 33 people. There was a, a gallery, bleachers. Uh, apparently all three rows were filled with people. These three autopsy pathologists were given a body, told, here's the body, he was shot from behind, he fell forward, which they wrote in their autopsy report, figure out how the wounds fit the known circumstances of the shooting. But what this really speaks to is the fact that the autopsy was not in the control of the, of the surgeons that were charged with doing it. It was in the control of people who were there who were telling them what they could do and what they couldn't do. Let's talk about those two wounds, Captain. Yes, sir. Uh, you examined this whole area of the back. Yes, sir. 
So on the night of the autopsy, Humes and Boswell said, hey, we've got a bullet hole in the president's back, which they <clears throat> examined with the finger, then with an instrument, then took x-rays, then took out the lungs, and no bullets. In a murder case, that is a very serious problem for them. So where did that bullet go? And well, just like I say, a work of fiction. A call came in from the FBI in Dallas. A bullet was found. Daryl Tomlinson, a maintenance man at Parkland Hospital, trying to get to the men's room, passing by the ER, found the stretchers blocking the way, bent down, moved the stretcher, and there was a bullet. How did that bullet get there? Humes and Boswell came up with this totally absurd conclusion that when the president lay on the stretcher, supine position, and pressure was applied to his chest for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. That pressure applied anteriorly, forced a bullet, which had gone deeply into the tissues, back out through, like a tunnel, in and out, a car in reverse. And what's very important to note is, bullets don't go in and out like that. The bullet becomes encased, but that was their conclusion. Keep in mind, they did not know that there was a bullet hole in the front of the president's neck. Commander, now, Captain Hughes, how many autopsies have you performed? Approximately 1,000. It wasn't until the next morning when Humes decided, hey, maybe we ought to talk with the surgeons at Parkland Hospital. Earlier that day, the doctors at Parkland Hospital had determined that the bullet had fortuitously ripped through the trachea. So they enlarged that bullet hole. And now they learned for the first time that there was a tracheostomy superimposed upon a bullet wound. Aha, said Humes and Boswell, now we know. He shot and fired from the rear, entered the back, moving around 2,000 feet per second, comes out, then stops, sees the starch white collar, gets frightened to death, plops into the front of his clothing, and that's where the bullet came from, found by Tomlinson on the stretcher. Four or five months later, under our inspector's single bullet theory, that bullet has been rejuvenated, has been revitalized, that bullet has now gone through Kennedy, through Connolly, and now, as of April of 1964, the stretcher bullet, Commission Exhibit 399, the hero of the Warren Commission report, is now from Connolly's left thigh. How is that possible? It's unbelievable. Which uh, is uh, scientific evidence that the wound was made from behind and passed forward. Dr. Humes destroyed his original autopsy notes. Now, Dr. Humes, the chief autopsy pathologist, and what we all know as doctors, notes taken while you're doing something are much more important and are likely to be uh, closer to the truth than anything you write later. And he admitted that he, he destroyed autopsy notes. You destroy your original notes in a medical legal autopsy? And remember, that night, Oswald is still alive. You're gonna be asked, doctor, at some point in time, under oath, to give sworn testimony why did you destroy those notes, doctor? Doesn't a pathologist keep his notes? And he said, well, I destroyed my own autopsy notes because they were splattered with the president's blood, and I didn't want them to become objects of morbid curiosity. The third doctor, Dr. Fink, who was there, also wrote some notes and complained bitterly about the fact that his notes disappeared, too. He was so upset because he had to go home and reconstruct all of his notes from memory. The two FBI agents at the autopsy Frank O'Neill and James Seibert, they reported what they heard during the autopsy, what they heard the, the uh, pathologists say, specifically Dr. Humes. They were interviewed by Arlen Specter in early 1964. He proceeded to write very unfavorable comments 
about them in a summary memo for the record. We know with confidence that why he didn't like what they had to say, because they were providing evidence that the single bullet theory could not be true. Neither Seibert nor O'Neill were asked to testify for the Warren Commission, and their written notes became classified. In 1997, their depositions were taken by the Assassination Records Review Board. Both Seibert and O'Neill were shown the uh, photographs of the back of JFK's head, the autopsy photographs that are the most controversial. And they both said that they didn't see anything like that at the autopsy. O'Neill had said, it looks like it's been doctored. I don't mean the photo's been doctored. It looks like the head has been put back together, you know, by embalmers and then photographed. That was what he said under oath. Seibert did not remember drawing a diagram of the wound for the House Committee, so he drew a new one for the review board. And it's one of our most important wound diagrams, and it shows what could only be an exit defect in the right rear of the skull. There was a piece about the size of a three-by-five card that was missing. This new evidence combines with the review board's declassification of 40 witnesses who saw a hole in the back of Kennedy's head constitutes powerful evidence of a shot from the front. Who was the autopsy photographer? John Stringer. He was a Navy civilian. He was widely respected. He had written a textbook on medical photography for the Navy. So he was the photographer of record. He photographed the autopsy itself and also photographed the president's brain. The autopsy photos of the president's brain are housed at the National Archives. These photos cannot be scanned or reproduced, but are only available to be viewed on site by researchers authorized by the Kennedy family. Half of the brain photos are taken of a brain from above, superior views, which is what Stringer said he shot of the complete organ. But the other half of the brain photos in the archives are taken of the bottom, called basilar views. We were very careful to question Mr. Stringer about all the photographs he took and ask him what kind of film he used for black and white, what kind of film he used for color. Jeremy Gunn showed Stringer the uh, color positive transparencies of the brain, and Stringer immediately noted, well, these aren't Kodak. These might be Ansco. He says, I don't see the name of the manufacturer on here, but these don't have the right notches in the corner. So Jeremy Gunn said, did you use this film with these notches in it? Stringer said, no. Did you take basilar views when you shot the brain? And he says, not as far as I know. Doesn't this all lead to the question, if Stringer did not take these photographs, then who did? Robert Knudsen was a Navy photographer who was detailed to the White House in 1958. If you read his obituaries in the New York Times and the Washington Post, you will see that he is credited with photographing Kennedy's autopsy. Except, officially, he was not. Robert Knudsen uh, was not interviewed by the Warren Commission. So they finally found Robert Knudsen in 1978. And to its credit, the House Select Committee did a deposition of him. To their discredit, they never published it, they buried it for 50 years. And it got released in 1993, and I know why they buried it, because everything he told them about autopsy photography contradicted what they thought they knew in the official record. After his death in 1989, his wife was interviewed by the Assassination Records Review Board. And, and did he describe for you the wounds that you, that you saw? He told me that his whole top of his head was just like that. He told her 
that one photograph in particular, presumably the back of the head, had been severely altered. Where was the wound covered? Someone had uh, drawn hair covering up the wound. In, in one sense, um, it's probably worth saying that what you're saying is very different from what the United States government has said for a long time. And why didn't you say something to somebody? You have to remember that he was a Navy man, and he had top secret clearance. Well, it was a way of life. You don't go around blabbing. Right. right. The White House, it was safe because he never opened his mouth. John Stringer, still the autopsy photographer of record. I think they both took pictures, and I personally think that many of John Stringer's pictures never made it into the official collection, and a lot of the ones we're looking at are Robert Knudsen's pictures. Sandra Spencer worked at the Anacostia facility, the Naval Photographic Center, which was quite separate from the Bethesda lab. And that weekend, she received film. The photographs that Sandra Spencer developed, which never made it into the official record. The only evidence we have of them is her testimony. Sandra Spencer was visibly upset when she looked at the official autopsy photographs because she said, I developed pictures of him and his family for almost three years, and he never looked like this. She said, he looks terrible in these photographs. She started to cry. In front of the uh, review board? Yes, she started to cry in front of Jeremy and I and the person from the archives. And she said, he did not look this bad in the photographs I developed on Sunday. He was very cleaned up, it was very respectful. And in one of the photographs she developed, there was a brain, an intact brain, sitting next to the body, the nude body of the president. Strange, first of all, that it's intact, because FBI agent Frank O'Neill told the review board that over half of the mass of the brain was missing. So the brain autopsy, or autopsies, there were probably two such events, uh, occurred later and were not done on November 22nd. Anybody that's seen the Zabruder film <laughs> can see Kennedy's head explodes and debris flies all over the place. Uh, Jackie Kennedy climbed out onto the trunk of the limousine, picked up a chunk of the president's brain, had it with her, took it in, and gave it to uh, one of the doctors at Parkland Hospital. And when you look at the autopsy photographs of the brain, which I've seen the originals of, you can just see that the brain is disrupted, but very little of the tissue is missing. Then we looked at the autopsy report of the brain, what they call the supplemental brain examination. The brain in evidence that's weighed there weighs 1,500 grams. 1,500 grams is, is above average weight of an adult male brain. There was one report of 8,000 autopsies, and the average weight of an adult male brain was 1,336 grams. So they're saying that President Kennedy's brain was well above the average weight. Where did all that brain tissue disappear to that flies around Dealey Plaza, that's, that Jackie has in her hand, that everybody's picking off of their clothes? There are two photographs of the brain at the archives. I viewed those in 2015. The brain looked to me to be distorted. My first thought was that the brain had been sitting in a jar of formaldehyde for a long time. The review board had a consultant, a renowned forensic pathologist, he looked at the brain photographs and he said, this is a very well-fixed brain. It's all gray. It's not pink at all. It's been fixed for two or three weeks in formaldehyde. It's been fixed at least two weeks, maybe as long as three weeks. I looked at Jeremy Gunn and he looked at me and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. 
because I knew that JFK's brain was examined less than three days after he was killed. One can only imagine that they wanted the damage to the brain to be consistent with the hypothesis that Oswald had done the shooting. So if you had a defect going all the way to the back of the head, like so many witnesses testified to it, it might raise questions about whether that huge defect could have caused, been caused by a single shot to the head, as Oswald is supposed to have done. At a teaching hospital, there was no shortage of brains. Autopsies were very frequent. Frequently, the brain was saved for teaching medical students. So it would not have been difficult to find a brain a replacement. This is just one more reason why this cannot be President Kennedy's brain in the photographs that we have stored at the archives. What we have here is evidence that impugns the authenticity of the brain photographs in the National Archives. If there was a trial today, these brain photographs would not be admissible as evidence. I'd hate to be in your shoes today. You have a lot to think about. You've seen much hidden evidence the American public has never seen. You know, going back to when we were children, I think that most of us in this courtroom thought that justice came into being automatically. That virtue was its own reward, that, that good would triumph over evil. But as we get older, we know this just isn't true. Individual human beings have to create justice, and this is not easy. Because the truth often poses a threat to power, and one often has to fight power at great risk to themselves. The one physician present at both Parkland Hospital and the Bethesda Morgue was George Berkeley, Kennedy's personal doctor. Our inspector did not depose George Berkeley, but Berkeley did an interview with the JFK Library in 1967 and was asked this question. Uh, do you agree with the, the one report on the number of bullets that entered the president's body? I would not uh, care to be quoted on that. The reason he didn't say anything was he was intimately involved in the cover-up. Berkeley signed the autopsy descriptive sheet with a bullet in the back at the level of T3. And he also signed Kennedy's death certificate, which also placed that wound in the back. That death certificate is not in the Warren Commission volumes. And the descriptive sheet in the commission volumes does not have Berkeley's signature. In 1977, through his lawyer, he wrote a letter to Richard Sprague, chief counsel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He said he had information indicating that others besides Oswald must have participated in the assassination. He was willing to talk about it at this time. Sprague, who made clear his intention to fully investigate the CIA's involvement, was forced out two weeks later. Dr. Berkeley submitted a written statement to the House Select Committee, but there is no official record of him being deposed as a witness. In 1982, he told JFK researcher Henry Hurt, I know there was more than one gunman. And when Henry Hurt tried to recontact Berkeley for more details, Berkeley cut him off the knees. I don't want to talk about it anymore. The very next year, Berkeley talked to Michael Kurtz, another JFK researcher, told him that he knew there was a conspiracy to kill the president and that he recalled an exit wound in the back of President Kennedy's head. Now, that's a very significant statement that the only doctor we know of who was present at both Parkland for treatment and at Bethesda during the autopsy told Michael Kurtz in 1983 that Kennedy had an exit wound in the back of his head. 
When Kurtz tried to recontact Berkeley, Berkeley cut him off the knees. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Dr. Berkeley was deceased by the time the review board was impaneled. So then Jeremy decided, well, we can ask the executor of his estate, his daughter, to sign a waiver so that we could go to the law firm that Mr. Illig used to work for, because he was deceased also, and see if there were any records in the file of Mr. Illig that would have revealed what it was he wanted to tell the HSCA in detail. And she said she would do that. And then Jeremy called her on the phone. She had completely changed her mind and adamantly refused to sign it and terminated the phone call. The face sheet for the autopsy where it shows the front and back silhouette of the body where you mark scars and bullet wounds and things. The face sheet showed the bullet wound in the back at the level of thoracic vertebra T3, which is five and a half to six inches below. That location coincided with what Seibert and O'Neill wrote in their report. And in order to make the facts fit the single bullet theory, one bullet doing all this damage, the doctors needed an exit point for the back wound. The Warren Commission raised the wound in the back so that it would align with the alleged exit wound in the front of Kennedy's neck. Commissioner Gerald Ford did this simply via the stroke of a pen, changing the description in their report from back to back of the neck. As I recall, they said about Gerald Ford that he could not chew gum and walk at the same time. Now all of a sudden, he becomes a forensic pathologist and a photographer and a criminalist and an expert, and he knows where the bullet hole was, and he moved it up. But then in 1979, the House Select Committee moved it lower in the back because they had pictures from the autopsy. It is conceivable that at the time, the Warren Commission thought no one would ever see the autopsy photos. When the review board declassified the notation showing what Ford had done, the former commissioner replied that it had nothing to do with a the conspiracy theory. He was only trying to be more precise. This is directly contradicted by a conversation Ford had with French President Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. Ford told him the assassination was not the work of one person. It was something set up. We were sure it was set up but we were not able to discover by whom. With all the documents declassified by the review board, we can see this scene in a new light. In regards to the JFK assassination, conspiracy theories are now conspiracy facts. The forensics show evidence of multiple shooters with Oswald not even at the sixth floor window at the time of the assassination and his fingerprints not found on the supposed murder weapon. Still, there was no trial for Lee Harvey Oswald. These people have given me a hearing without legal representation or anything. I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. Attorney Mark Lane tried to represent Oswald in the proceedings, but was denied by the Warren Commission. This commission has functioned in a fashion which totally disregards the rights of the accused. I don't know if anybody's in it, but I know the case, which I can present it against from the full court, is in contradiction. I know that right now in the office of the Dallas District Attorney is a powerful post which shows that Lee Harvey Oswald did not file a rifle on November 22nd, 1963. I know that because I was told he's got a copy of Black Rock. Did the accused man get a fair trial?
and being responsible for thousands of cases ahead of the criminal courts and running the Homicide Bureau, that I don't believe there's any courtroom in America where Oswald would have been convicted on the evidence that was presented before the Warren Commission. Instead of a jury of 12 American citizens, judgment was passed by a panel of seven appointed wise men and career statesmen. A judgment perpetuated by the media at that time. Looking at the declassified documents, we see there is even more mystery behind Oswald to uncover. A man who was, in his own words, a patsy, murdered on live television. This was the dreary funeral of Lee Harvey Oswald, alleged murderer of President Kennedy. Burial was in an otherwise empty plot in Rose Hill Cemetery outside Fort Worth, a plot that we were told was bought long ago by Oswald's mother. No one was on hand for the funeral as mourners, except the family of the dead man. Oswald spent his early years in an orphanage. At the age of 17, he joined the U.S. Marine Corps. A year later, he was sent to one of the most secret U.S. bases in the world, Atsugi in Japan. From here, the CIA operated spy flights over communist China using U-2 reconnaissance planes. During the 1975 Church Committee investigation of U.S. intelligence activities, committee member Richard Schweiker remarked about Oswald that everywhere you looked with him, there are fingerprints of intelligence. Many people said he was a forthright, uh, upstanding American as a young person, and yet uh, later depicted him as a Castro-loving, Cuban-loving, Russian-loving person. In the spring of 1963, Oswald started handing out pamphlets for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, a pro-Castro, pro-Cuban revolution group that was popular on college campuses. And some of them he stamped 544 Camp Street, which was an office in downtown uh, New Orleans, near where the CIA's offices were, right across the street, in fact. It was also the home of the Cuban Revolutionary Council, which was the leading anti-Castro group. Why would a pro-Castro activist put his headquarters in the same headquarters as the leading anti-Castro group in the country? Because he was a provocateur. This gets back to being an agent or double agent because he played both roles. Here was Oswald, who had two associations. One, he is a group of anti-Castro Cubans. Same time, he was handing out leaflets for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, with the other side of the fence. So the two groups that had the most motivation uh, to assassinate the president, he was dealing with. And not surprisingly, many of these groups were known and in some case supported by the U.S. government. In the spring of 1963, Oswald began associating with men who it would be revealed had clear connections with these government efforts. One of these men, David Ferry, had been with Oswald in the Civil Air Patrol back in 1955 and was known as an extreme anti-communist. He was also a trainer and a pilot for the CIA in its secret war against Cuba. Oswald was involved with these Cuban exile training activities with Ferry. I do know that uh, I saw him one time with a man by the name of Guy Bannister. And uh, what Guy's role was in all of this, I, I really don't know. Bannister was an extreme right-winger 
who was close to the FBI, the CIA, and the American Nazi Party. Bannister gave Oswald his own office at 544 Camp Street. Oswald now began to use his office to print up and stamp pro-Castro literature. After the assassination, when the FBI questioned Bannister, a former FBI agent himself, they did not ask him about Oswald. At some point, the FBI, I think probably after the assassination, uh, decided they, didn't, they wanted to disconnect Oswald from the FBI. And, and of course, Bannister, who's associated with the FBI, would have to be disconnected as well. The problem with that, many of those handbills had the 544 Camp Street address on them. There was a message from New Orleans to the Bureau written by Special Agent Maynard um, who actually mentioned pamphlets that had the 544 Camp Street address on it and before that message was sent it was scratched out. The Warren Commission pushed the idea that Oswald was a staunch communist, citing evidence of his defection to the Soviet Union in 1959. His trip to Russia raised a number of questions that we wanted to get into. For example, when any American went to Russia and renounced his American citizenship and subsequently changed his mind and wanted to come back to this country, upon returning to this country, there was a thorough debriefing by the CIA, with one exception as far as we could ascertain, Oswald. Uh, that smacks of an intelligence relationship. Come on, man. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the Soviet Union. State Department intelligence officer Otto Otepka had noted the marked increase in the number of Americans defecting to Russia at the time. He also noted that some of them came from the military. He therefore suspected that some of these men were fake defectors. They had been assigned by the CIA to garner intelligence behind the Iron Curtain. He sent a letter to the CIA asking which ones were real and which were their agents. Oswald was one of the names on Otepka's list. Otepka's request was forwarded to James Angleton, chief of counterintelligence. He instructed that there be no research done on Oswald, but Otepka continued to work on the Oswald case. The thing of significance was that he was really interested in Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination. And he actually had a study of these defectors in his safe. Well, things got worse. He, his office was not only bugged, they planted people in his office to spy on him. They started putting confidential documents in his burn bag and then trying to blame him and saying he's burning confidential documents. The guy's gone, you know, wacko. As a result, he was formally removed from the State Department on November the 5th, 1963, just 17 days before the assassination. So you will not see Otepka's name in the Warren report, and he was not called as a witness before that body. In fact, Angleton, the man who had access to all the Oswald files at the CIA, coordinated the agency's response to the Warren Commission's requests. The CIA Deputy Director of Plans, Richard Helms, swore to the Warren Commission that the agency never had or contemplated any contact with Oswald. 
the line that the CIA fed the Warren Commission, that we, we didn't, really didn't know anything about this guy. We now know that that was complete nonsense. Oswald was a figure of intense interest for four years before the assassination. And a dozen senior CIA officers were very well acquainted with him. Everything he did, where he went, what his politics were, his family life. I mean, remember, they were reading his mother's mail. That's how closely they were watching him, right up until Kennedy was killed. And then Kennedy was killed, Oswald's arrested, and they say, oh, we know nothing about this man. In fact, ARRB records show that Angleton and the CIA were receiving reports on Oswald up until one week before the assassination. So, you know, the whole investigation would have been totally different if the public and the investigators had known just how much the CIA knew about the alleged lone nut. One of the places Oswald leafleted in front of was Clay Shaw's International Trade Mart. Shaw, who was arrested by New Orleans DA Jim Garrison on charges that he was part of the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy, always denied he was associated with the CIA. You have never yourself had any CIA connection? None whatsoever. Any association with the organization? No. The review board has shown these denials to be false. Shaw was both a highly valued contract agent and had a covert security clearance for a project codename QK Enchant. New Orleans attorney Dean Andrews had worked with Oswald in May of 63 in an attempt to upgrade his military discharge from its undesirable status. After the assassination, a man calling himself Clay Bertrand phoned Andrews and asked him to consider going to Dallas to defend Oswald. Under oath, Clay Shaw denied that he was Clay Bertrand, and Andrews claimed that because of the medication he was on, he had only imagined the phone call. But today, because of the work of the Assassination Records Review Board, we now have evidence and 12 people who confirm that Shaw used this name as an alias. Andrews later admitted that Shaw was Bertrand to author Harold Weisberg, but made him promise not to reveal this until after Andrews' death. In the FBI, uh, a stop or flash was placed on Oswald's files, which meant that no one could ask for a document in those files, or no one could even add a document to those files without going through the FBI's espionage division. And that lasted for four years. It was essentially a blinking red light on Oswald's files at FBI. On 8 October 1963, an FBI agent whose name was Marvin Giesling took that status off of Oswald's files. What that action did was to lower Oswald's threat profile at the FBI just weeks before the Kennedy assassination. And what that would mean is there was no reason to put Oswald's name on the security index. One thing about the security index is when you have a presidential motorcade going through a, a particular route, anybody who's on that index has to be removed from where they are. They cannot be on the parade route. 
And of course, it exposes the president to a dangerous situation that he shouldn't have been. That action at the FBI didn't happen in isolation. The same thing happened at CIA at exactly the same time. Who was the CIA's liaison they chose to work with the House Select Committee in 1978? George Joannidis. He was the case officer for the Cuban students who had a series of encounters with Oswald before the assassination. And then, 13 years later, when Congress reopens the investigation, the CIA calls Joannidis out of retirement and make him the point person to deal with the congressional investigators who are looking into the CIA's possible role in the assassination. The HSCA knew nothing about this. And I went to Bob Blakey, the, the head of the HSCA investigation, and I said, Bob, did you ever know this guy, Joe Anides? And he said, yeah, you know, we dealt with him a lot. He was the liaison. And I said, did you know what he was doing in 1963? And he said he wasn't doing anything in 1963. We had an agreement with the CIA that nobody who was operational at the time of the assassination would be involved in the investigation. And I said, Bob, Joe Anides was running those Cubans who were in touch with Oswald. He was running the Cubans who were blaming Castro for the assassination. He was Dick Helms' hand-picked man in Miami controlling the group that had the most to do with Oswald before and after the assassination. And then he came along and he stonewalled you. The reason why they brought Joe Anides in to do it was to hide the connection to Oswald. He was definitely shocked because he saw just how clever they had been. They had gone right to the heart of his investigation and figured out how to paralyze him. I remember that he said, you know, I, 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 I'll never believe anything the CIA tells me again. Even the Assassination Records Review Board had trouble getting documents from government agencies. What were some of your difficulties working with the CIA? One of the uh, censors at the CIA was at a meeting with us and there was a document that we put up on the screen and said we were prepared to release it. And he asked him, you know, tell us why we shouldn't release this record. And it was silence for about two minutes. And he finally said, I know there's a reason. I just can't think of what it is. In late 1992, a month after the Records Act was passed, the Secret Service began its compliance plan. But by January of 1995, it had begun destroying important documents. The destruction of records is actually referenced in the uh, Assassination Records Review Board final uh, report. A very, um, very disappointing. Uh, they were records that related to trips that President Kennedy had taken uh, in the fall of 1963 prior to him going to Dallas. There were many threats made to President Kennedy's life during the year 1963. They're called threat sheets, and the Secret Service fought us on release of those records. They even enlisted Vice President Gore's wife to help them because she had a very legitimate concern for mental health records. And the idea was that this might disclose the names of people who had mental health problems. In the end, when we required agencies to disclose, to swear under oath that they had located all assassination records, had turned everything over to us, the Secret Service refused to sign the document under oath. I think that was telling. Few people knew that there had been at least two prior plots to kill President Kennedy in 1963. One was in Chicago on November 2nd. The second was in Tampa on November 18th. 
Kennedy ended up not going to Chicago. Tell us about that plot. An informant on October 31st, an informant named Lee, gave a warning to the FBI stating that four Cubans were headed to Chicago to shoot Kennedy. The following day, a landlady uh, reported to the Chicago police that she had rented a room to four people that had rifles with telescopic sights and a sketch of the motorcade. The FBI passed that on to the Secret Service, and the Secret Service botched the surveillance of these four individuals. The, the two of them escaped, but they actually picked up two of the snipers, and they detained them. They were stonewalled by the snipers. They didn't get any information out of them. While this was going on, there was another threat coming in from another alternate patsy named Thomas Arthur Valley, who was making open and loud threats that he would assassinate Kennedy. They only picked him up when Kennedy canceled his trip on November 2nd at 10 in the morning. What you found in Valley and the whole Chicago plot is so many similarities to what eventually happened in Dallas that it, it can't be considered coincidental. Valet, if we compare him to uh, Oswald, is an ex-Marine. He had been posted like Oswald in the Far East on a station that was linked to the CIA because there were U-2 surveillance planes on it. It was easy to portray him as disgruntled, anti-Kennedy, a loner, armed. Uh, he had another intelligence link that he shared with Oswald. He trained Cuban exiles for combat, which was a CIA responsibility. And Oswald, we know, at least offered to do that. He most likely did train Cuban exiles, but we know he tried to. Oswald, as we know, was moved from New Orleans to Dallas in October to be there just at the right time for the motorcade. And he's placed in a tall building where he gets a job. He's adjacent to the perfect kill zone. Now, if we look at what happened to uh, Valet, he's moved like a pawn in August from Long Island to Chicago to be in there in time for the motorcade. And where does he get a job? In a tall building adjacent to the motorcade with a perfect view of a, a kill zone. It would have uh, forced Kennedy's motorcade to do a sharp turn, slow down, and be in a point where you could have had perfect triangulation of fire. And what about the trip to Florida? On November 18th, Kennedy was scheduled to do a 27-mile-long motorcade in Tampa. The Secret Service was very nervous about the Floridian Hotel where the motorcade would have gone by. It would have forced a sharp turn. Nobody fired away at him. But in this case, the Patsy would have been a Gilbert Polycarpo Lopez. He was a Cuban exile. He attended Fair Play for Cuba committee meetings. And what do you think was the relevance of it? Well, if he had been assassinated in Tampa, Lopez, he would have been the uh, potential patsy. If they had to admit to a front shot, because Oswald was behind, there were rumors that he had assisted Oswald in the assassination in Dallas. Had anyone, anyone tried to speak to the Warren Commission about these incidents? Abraham Bolden was the first black uh, Secret Service agent assigned to the White House detail, and he was handpicked by Kennedy. He was in Chicago uh, when this plot went down. So he was there when the Secret Service was briefed about the four snipers. And he witnessed how much the security was lax for Chicago. And he also witnessed, after the assassination, the steps that were taken 
to keep the Chicago plot completely secret. No paper trail, compartmentalized, agents ordered to keep silent about it. This information did not make its way to secret service agents that were protecting Kennedy for future motorcades, including Dallas. Secret Service agent Elmer Moore was aware of Agent Bolden and the Chicago plot. I met with Elmer three times face to face. Several phone calls, very short, one very long one. I first asked him, did you ever interview Thomas Arthur Valley? And he says, oh, Washington wouldn't let me see the files on that. I said, oh, well, what about a man, uh, a Secret Service agent by the name of Abraham Bolden? His demeanor completely changed. He stood up from his chair, he pulled out his revolver, and he put it in the table and right in front of me. He leaned over the table and he says, Jim, tell me right now, who are you working for? I said, I'm an independent researcher. He told me in a very loud voice and with a very stern look on his face, we finally got him. Abraham Bolden was one person who did try to say what he knew to the Warren Commission, but they blocked him. He was blocked from talking and eventually railroaded into some phony crime and put into jail for a number of years. The National Archives is home to forensic evidence of Kennedy's assassination and government files regarding Lee Harvey Oswald. But the review board also declassified many documents regarding Kennedy's plans for withdrawal from Vietnam and how he planned to shape his progressive new American foreign policy. A policy that, if put in motion, would completely derail plans secretly already set up by the Pentagon and the CIA. I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment. Is that why? Well, that's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia keeps them guessing like some kind of polygon, prevents them from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? his first year in office. Kennedy must shape his own policy as president, sometimes in conflict with what his predecessors have done, especially in foreign policy. And by the fall of 1963, Kennedy had made many enemies. He was working on an American withdrawal from Vietnam, an upcoming state visit to Indonesia in 64, an independent, unified democracy in the Congo, through Nasser, a balanced policy in the Middle East, normalization of relations with Cuba, and a detente with Russia, even going so far as to offer them a joint mission to the moon. But back in April of 1961, the first stain on his administration asserted itself. Kennedy, who had campaigned as a strong anti-communist, signed off on the Bay of Pigs invasion plan. His approval of the plan contained two distinct limitations. America would supply arms and equipment, but there would be no Americans in the landing force. Second, after preliminary airstrikes by Cuban exile pilots, there would only be further strikes 
after the invasion secured an airfield. Dulles believed that Kennedy would, like Eisenhower, support the operation with direct U.S. military intervention if needed, all the while assuring him it would not be necessary. Well, first I want to say that there will not be under any conditions be an intervention in Cuba by United States Armed Forces. Victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. Further statements, uh, detailed uh, discussions are not to uh, conceal responsibility because I'm the responsible officer of the government. In public, Kennedy accepted the blame. In private, he and his brother suspected they had been lied to by the CIA. Alan Dulles confessed that the mission was bound to fail as it was planned by the CIA without U.S. military support. He confessed this while uh, preparing an article for Harper's Magazine with the young editor, Willie Morris, that he couldn't have done this with his small group of exiles, this Cuban brigade. He needed the Marines and the Air Force to go in. And he thought Kennedy was going to be young and pliable, and that at the 11th hour, Kennedy would be forced to send in uh, the full might of the U.S. military. While drafting the article in 1965, Dulles told his editor that Kennedy, he thought he was a god. Jack Kennedy did stand firm. He did not send in the military. He did not make it an even bigger global crisis than it already was. Kennedy is just furious. He knows he's been lied to, deceived by his senior military and intelligence advisors. He announces that the agency uh, is going to be downsized. And he vows famously, he tells friends, he's going to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. It wasn't just the Bay of Pigs that angered President Kennedy when it came to the CIA. In that same month, in April of 1961, he was also being lied to about a coup in France, a military coup that was aimed at overthrowing President Charles de Gaulle, one of our strongest allies. Alan Dulles, who had a long history of antagonism with de Gaulle, falsely reported to Kennedy that the vast majority of the French military was staunchly opposed to de Gaulle's support of Algerian self-determination. What he didn't tell him was that as far back as 1959, the CIA had discussed his overthrow. This coup attempt, orchestrated by four French generals, was quickly put down, and several news reports pointed to Alan Dulles's hand in supporting the episode. JFK assures the French ambassador, I have nothing to do with this. I stand in full support of President de Gaulle, but he says something very, very alarming. He tells the French ambassador, President Kennedy, that I'm not in full control, though, of my entire government. I'm not in control of the CIA, and I can't speak for what's happening there. That's a stunning admission for a U.S. president to make. In 1960, the Congo had been granted its independence from Belgian colonial rule and carried out a democratic election. In the disorder of the transition, the Belgians, backed by England and France, sought to eliminate its charismatic prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. 
Eisenhower and CIA Director Alan Dulles favored the European nation in this colonial conflict. Eisenhower gave the go-ahead to have Lumumba assassinated. Kennedy never knew this. He gets elected the following November of 1960, and he heads in the opposite direction. To those new states whom we welcome to the ranks of the free, we pledge our word that one form of colonial control shall not have passed away merely to be replaced by a far more iron tyranny. But events are already in motion. With the backing of British and U.S. intelligence and arms, Colonel Joseph Mobutu's forces captured President Lumumba at the beginning of December 1960. Doug Hammarskjöld, the U.N. Secretary General, calls JFK, uh, who's the president-elect at this point, and asks him to intercede to get Lumumba released from prison. When Kennedy intervenes to save Lumumba, that's a signal directly to the CIA that they have to dispatch this guy immediately. And so 48 hours before Kennedy takes the oath of office, Lumumba is delivered into the hands of his enemies. He's taken out and shot in the head. Kennedy doesn't know this until a month later. Who finally tells him? The CIA? No. They still keep it a secret. He's informed by his UN ambassador, Adelaide Stevenson. His face crumples. He's holding his hand. He's grimacing in anguish, hearing about the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. Within a very short period of time after the assassination, Hammarskjöld died in a mysterious plane crash. The photographs show his body as the only one not burned or charred. And he had a playing card, reportedly the ace of spades, stuffed into his shirt collar above the knot of the tie. There are controversial documents that indicate Alan Dulles was involved in the sabotage of the plane. John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, they felt, you know, what they had to say was good enough for the rest of the world, that they knew more than the president. There were things they didn't tell Eisenhower that they were doing under his administration. And actually, Jack Kennedy does move to decapitate the top of the CIA. He lets it be known that Alan Dulles, as well as his two top advisors, Richard Bissell, who was also very involved with the Bay of Pigs, and General Cabell, who was uh, the right-hand man to Alan Dulles. So the top three people in the CIA, Kennedy forces about before the end of the year. Have you ever committed any act of violence in your life? No. The existence of communism so close to American shores kept Cuba on Kennedy's plate. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff presented a plan to Kennedy called Operation Northwoods, whereby the CIA would secretly perform terrorist acts in the United States and blame them on Castro to justify bombings and an invasion of Cuba. And you see all these plans being sent to McNamara and to Kennedy. Fake an attack by Cubans against the Guantanamo Bay sentries. Sink a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame it on Cuba. The one that scares me the most was very sophisticated. Uh, take an airliner and fly it as a drone over Cuba without any people in it with a tape recording that would play. We're under attack by Cuban aircraft. Oh, my God, they're going to kill us. Blow up the airplane, blow up this huge drone and use that to start a war. The president declined the recommendation. 
The Northwoods plan was our big find in the way of military records. They're universally recognized today for their importance. It's one of those releases that the review board members, the board members themselves, were justifiably proud of that came out of the JFK Records Act. In addition to the problems with the CIA, Kennedy's own military advisors started pressuring him to send troops to Vietnam, a country that Kennedy had visited 10 years earlier as a congressman and witnessed firsthand how the French were losing their war against the Viet Minh in the fight for independence. Once he became president, Kennedy wanted to avoid the same trap. The Vietnam decision is finally arrived at, which is NSAM 111, where Kennedy says no combat troops, but will increase the advisors. And that was his decision in the Kennedy presidency, never to cross that line. Near the end of his first year in office, Kennedy received a report from Walt Rostow and General Maxwell Taylor, his foreign policy and military advisors, that called for increased training of South Vietnamese troops, increased bombings of the North, and use of U.S. combat troops. The influence on Kennedy's reluctance to commit on ground troops was his ambassador to India, John Kenneth Galbraith. My father went to see uh, Walt Rostow. He went in to talk to him. Rostow gestured on his desk to the uh, pile of papers. The Rostow-Taylor report was plainly visible. Uh, my father asked to see it. Walt said that his security classification wasn't sufficiently high. Uh, my father did not think that Walt Rostow's security classification was higher than his. Uh, and at a given moment, uh, the phone rang. Walt turned to, uh, to answer the phone, and, and Dad picked up the report and walked out of the office and read it. Kennedy sent Galbraith to Saigon to write a report that would differ in his recommendations from what Taylor and Rostow had given to him. Kennedy knew what he wanted and he knew what my father would deliver, which he did, which was a very detailed and skeptical report about the efficiency of the South Vietnamese government, about the capacity of any military force to prevail in, in the security situation that was existed in South Vietnam at that time. Kennedy told Galbraith to deliver his report to Defense Secretary McNamara, and he, in turn, gave instructions to begin the withdrawal to General Harkins, the commanding general of all forces in Vietnam. The Pentagon dragged its feet on formulating plans, and McNamara called for a meeting in May of 1963. One of the most important finds of the review board are the notes from this meeting. McNamara said, it's not fast enough. I want you to accelerate it. He says, I want to pull out a thousand men uh, in December by the end of the year. And I want you to pull out complete units, not just individuals. He wanted units to come out. After the withdrawal plan was approved, Kennedy sent Secretary of Defense McNamara and General Taylor to Saigon in September of 63. He planned on using their report as the basis to formally order the withdrawal to begin. Kennedy controlled the report, since it was actually being written under the supervision of Bobby Kennedy. Three days later, that leaks out into the newspapers, then his opponents find out. And McGeorge Bundy says to Kennedy, hey, look, you know, if they're talking about it in the newspapers, we might as well put it on paper. And they put it, and it was in Sam 263. And that's how it was actually written and why. Well, here's one of the things McNamara said in the secret debrief. He said, we had agreed, the president and I, that we had trained them, we had given them everything we could, and if they couldn't win, too bad. We had to get out, even if they were going to be defeated. 
So McNamara and Kennedy had decided that they were willing to pull out of Vietnam in a losing scenario. That's very important. But later in that month, McGeorge Bundy, who's the national security advisor, puts together a memo uh, based upon the, the truth about the war, which is just going terribly. And he does it in a way to try and make sure that Kennedy would be able to go along with this. This is reflected in the National Security Action Memorandum, NSAM 273. The way Bundy writes the first draft of 273 is to say, look, we need to intensify the war effort against the communists. But the way we're going to do it is to increase South Vietnamese forces. There's not a word about American forces or Americanizing the war. Well, Kennedy's body is still in the casket in the rotunda over in the Capitol building. Is when Johnson changes NSAM 273 to a new version. And when it comes to the key paragraph, paragraph seven, which just talks about how we're going to intensify the war, instead of changing a few words, there's two big hash marks through that paragraph. And it's completely rewritten. And I said, I asked Bundy in an interview, I said, who told you to do that? He said, Johnson did. These changes allowed the U.S. to unilaterally engage in combat in Vietnam, rather than simply supporting and advising South Vietnamese troops. And within days, we're talking about sending out the, the SOTO missions, these, these uh, naval excursions that, uh, along the coastline of, of North Vietnam that ends up with the Maddox and, and the, the so-called Tonkin Gulf uh, attacks, and then the resolution in Congress opening the door to intervention in Vietnam. In the review board's declassifications, there's evidence that Johnson was fully aware of Kennedy's Vietnam withdrawal plans, disagreed with them, and worked on Robert McNamara to make him renounce them. Well, I always thought it was foolish for you to make any statements about withdrawing. I thought it was bad psychologically. But you and the president thought otherwise, and I just sat silent. In retaliation for this unprovoked attack on the high seas, our forces have struck the bases used by the North Vietnamese patrol craft. And as declassified memos have revealed, by autumn of 1964, during his campaign against Barry Goldwater, Johnson had already decided that he was going to escalate the Vietnam War. In fact, the directive that would become the Tonkin Gulf Resolution had been written before the Tonkin Gulf incident itself. Three months before the election, Johnson had already planned for an extensive air war. It was to begin after his inauguration. We intend to convince the communists that we cannot be defeated by force of arms or by superior power. When news came of Kennedy's death all over the planet, People were mourning and crying and going to embassies. In Latin America, people just lit candles because they didn't even have electrical power, but they wanted to honor his killing. In the Yucatan Peninsula, peasants cleared an area and planted a peace garden. Nasser learned of Kennedy's death in the middle of the night. He got up, dressed, went down to his office, and then realized, well, there's nothing I can do about this. According to his son, Nasser went to a, a great uh, state of depression after Kennedy's death. Uh, relations with Egypt gradually deteriorated and they increasingly shifted their allegiance towards the Soviet Union as well. So 
the mass was held in the leading Catholic church in Cairo, which has a capacity of 600. They somehow fit 4,000 people into that church. Algeria, which had special feeling for Kennedy, declared a state of mourning for a week. Flags were flown uh, at half-mast. The U.S. ambassador to Egypt said that he thought the Egyptians had seen in Kennedy the best of what they saw in Americans, that Kennedy had, had represented a kind of ideal of America to ordinary Egyptians. Castro got the news of Kennedy's death while discussing détente with the French journalist Jean Daniel. He then exclaimed, this is bad news. Everything is now going to change. When Khrushchev paid his respects to President Kennedy at the American Embassy, he was reportedly holding back tears. Robert Kennedy knew that after his brother's death, relations with the Soviet Union hung in the balance. My father wanted to convey a message to Premier Khrushchev saying that our family knew that the Soviets were not involved in the assassination, that it was a right-wing plot from our own country. In other words, the CIA, or forces aligned with the CIA. The day that his brother died, my father's first phone call was to the CIA desk officer at Langley, and he asked them, did your people conduct this horror. We know from how Bobby operated that terrible day, November 22nd, 1963, at his home in uh, McLean, Virginia, that he immediately suspected there was not a lone gunman. Why do we know this? Because he was being told by his closest aides, people like Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers, who were in the limousine immediately behind President Kennedy's limousine. They were both World War II veterans. They knew what gunfire sounded like. They reported it to him that gunfire had not just come from the, the rear. It had come from different sides. There was gunfire from the front as well. It was a crossfire. I was in the East Room with my dad and with Jackie and a couple of my siblings and Lyndon Johnson came in and told the adults in the room that Lee Harvey Oswald had been killed and that a man had shot him. And I said to my dad and mom at that time, why did he shoot him? Did he, did he love our family? And the way that they acted was that this only compounded the tragedy. Many people at home felt that after Kennedy's death, a period of depression and cynicism overtook the country, and that America was somehow changed forever. Our overwhelming disbelief in the Warren Commission's findings contributed to increased skepticism of all our foundational beliefs about government. But I think Alan Dulles's appointment to the Warren Commission is one of the great frauds of American history. I don't think that if you had 10 more commissions, you'd ever get away from the idea that maybe there was a plot. We just didn't find any traces of it. What really happened with Alan Dulles was the CIA lobbied to have him put on the commission because they needed to have one of their own on the commission to make sure that certain doors remain closed. I think there's a direct thread between the events of 1963 and the kind of horror show that America is having to endure right now. 
And I think once you kill a president in broad daylight on the streets of an American city, and everyone knows that powerful forces did it, that sends a signal not only to the American people, but to the American media, to the American future leaders. And if America really wants a democratic society, and we should get to the bottom of this traumatic crime that continues to reverberate throughout American history. They poll historians, they poll the American people and say who are the most popular presidents. The one metric that you can use to objectively at least judge the foreign policy is how many boulevards are named after that president in foreign countries. How many hospitals, how many colleges, how many schools, how many statues are are standing of that president in capitals all over the world. And in that sense, President Kennedy beats every other president hands down. Although many of Kennedy's progressive and unprecedented goals and changes in policy were undone after his assassination, a few powerful ones remain. I think Mr. Kennedy has done some significant things in civil rights. And uh, I would include the Attorney General. I think uh, both of these men are men of genuine goodwill. And uh, I think there is a necessity now to see the urgency of the moment. I'm asking from you an unequivocal assurance that you will not bar entry to these students and that you will step aside peacefully, do your constitutional duty. In showdowns using federal troops, the Kennedy administration won admission of black students to the last public colleges in the South. George Wallace made it clear that this fight was not over. And, and the, the South this year, next year, will decide who the next president is. Whoever the South votes for will be the president. And you're going to see that the South is going to be against some folks. That night, Kennedy addressed the nation in what many consider the finest presidential speech on civil rights since Abraham Lincoln. And that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed? 100 years of delay have passed. President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. We face, therefore, a moral crisis as a country and a people. And this is a matter which concerns this country and what it stands for. And in meeting it, I ask the support of all of our citizens. Thank you very much.